Live. You're listening to the Order 66 podcast, brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and the generous donations of Jared Williams, Kevin Malone, Donald Weller, Sean Kumar, Darren Hampton, Andy Bethel, B. Witzel, and Balaam's Blasters. What is up, Gamer Nation? GM Chris here, and for those tuning in for the very first time, welcome to the Order 66 Podcast Live! The original podcast devoted exclusively to Star Wars role-playing. And I'm joined tonight by my co-host, a man of verve, vigor, and epic headgear, the inestimable GM Phil. What is up, home slice? Certainly not the temperature up here in New England, my mi amigo grande. <laughs> Do I want to know? Uh, it's in the teens right now, and, you know, ever since my medical issues of last year, I do not handle the cold very well anymore. But my, the room is at least nice and comfortable. I've got my, you know, official uh, New England Garrison hoodie on. I've got a nice warm, uh, a nice warm uh, Imperial officer's cap to, to keep my, uh, my bald head uh, at the proper temperature, and I am so happy to be back on the air with you, sir. I am too, man. It's been a long time. Um, listeners, I'm sorry for that. Uh, life is, has kind of gotten in the way. Um, life, life is a habit of kicking you in the teeth, and just when you think it's over and you're like, yes, I'm done, uh, you you got to go to the dentist. Uh, <laughs> Boy, howdy, am I aware of that problem? Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm sorry it's taken us uh, so long to get an episode out, guys, but we're, we're here, we're back, and we're ready to kick things off. We have a very exciting, solid show topic for you guys tonight. Um, we are uh, sans GM Dave at the moment, though he may be joining us later on as we progress. Uh, he's moving oh, He's moving his daughter home. Uh, she just celebrated her college graduation. Um, so they, they just got back in. So, so if he does listen to this after the fact, Dave, congrats and congrats to your beautiful daughter um, on that amazing achievement. So it's, it's all good. It's all good, man. So, Phil... Shall we, um, shall we get into the things that we, the, 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 the stuff, the things? Saddle up. Let's do it. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. Announcements, announcements, what do we got? We got the featured podcast of the week, and if you are a fan of Fantasy Flight Games' narrative dice system, and we know you are because you're listening to this show, you're probably a fan of Genesis, FFG's generic RPG system based on the narrative dice system that grew its legs with the Star Wars role-playing game. And there is no better resource for the Genesis discussions than our own Dice Pool podcast, 
The Dice Pool just this week released episode 18, Q&A, Realms of Terranoth, where Huli, Flano, Huzz, and Caitlin welcome FFG's own Tim Cox and Tim Huckleberry to dig deep into the Realms of Terranoth source book for Genesis. Two hours of excellent Q&A and Terranoth discussion, so go check it out. You can find that and many more great podcasts, including this one at www.d20radio.com. I did get a chance to listen to that discussion and the one before it for Realms of Terranoth where they did a deep dive into the book. Yeah. It is solid, man. Yeah. Absolutely solid. It's a great show. They're doing a great job. And they, they're, what I love most about that show is it's not just content all the time. They pepper in live play constantly. Um, oh, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, but you can find them and us and other great podcasts, as Phil said, at d20radio.com. But of course, d20radio.com is not just the place to go for great gaming podcasts, but some of the best fan-generated content and articles on the internet. In fact, we are proud to announce that Governor Tarkin has officially classified d20radio.com as both a valued supporter of the Empire and has also blacklisted us for Rebel Sympathy. Um, but at least Kanja Club left us a five-star review, uh, mm. which is really weird because we, we don't have reviews. Um... Anyway, kind of odd. Yeah, now yeah. That it. yeah. Um, this week, oh. uh, this week on the D Twenty Radio blog, uh, Chris Hunt brought us another Holonet uplink article uh, with a throwback to the classic and much loved by me video game Jedi Knight Two Jedi Outcast, um, with a gazetteer on Artist Prime, uh, full location details along with Artusian crystals uh, for your reborn Jedi threats, um, are there to bring your group to this deadly and mysterious locale right now, and. Philip uh, Krasminski uh, brings us stats for a great new fringe threat, and he went all out with a downloadable PDF and everything. Uh, the Binary Pirate Gang. Uh, stats for the Pirate Gang and their leader, Kath Scarlet, as well as ship stats for the Pirate's vessels and Kath's personal, nastily modified fire spray, the Blood Letter. Uh, some great threats ready for download for use in your games tonight. And you guys can find all this content and so much more daily at d20radio.com yes indeed um why don't we talk about conventions because we've had some convention news and appearances since last we were on the air whoa you just got back from pax unplugged i did i did and not only did i just get back from pax unplugged but pax unplugged is where my first ever module for official module for fantasy flight games got run wow Yes, I got contacted and asked to write the Android module follow-up to the one that was played at Gen Con. Uh, wrote it up in October, it was edited throughout November, and at the end of November, myself, my former all my own, former Star Trek Online podcast co-host uh, Alex, uh, good friend Brett and uh, Tim, all drove down to Philadelphia, and we ran games for Fantasy Flight Games, and it was... It was a blast. It was a it was a good time. It was a real good time. Oh god, that's um, fantastic. Pax Unplugged for those who are not aware, it's it's the Pax, you know, it's part of the Pax Empire. Uh, Pax Prime, Pax East, Pax South, Pax Pax Australia, uh, where all it is is tabletop games. Tabletop games, role-playing games, board games, card games, all the stuff that without no video games at all. Um, this is the second year they've done it. And they had twice as many people there as this year as they did last year. It definitely had the sophomore issues of a convention. Okay. Um, 
they the, the the way you sign up for games is you get in line at the beginning of the day. You don't pre-reg online. You don't buy tickets beforehand. You you get in line and you hope that the wait list has space by the time you get up there. Um, they're gonna have to do something next year because every game was sold out with, you know, at least two thirds of the line still a line. Wow. So yeah. That or more game companies are gonna, or game companies are gonna have to just step up and try to run more games. Hmm. So not sure what they're gonna do, um, but regardless, it was a good time. I got to meet a bunch of new folks that I haven't met at conventions before, who are listeners to the show, uh, and who are fans of our work. And um, yeah, no, it was it was a it was a real fun time. It was real fun. It was really surreal at one point, just kind of stepping back, looking around the room, and realizing that there are three tables worth of people running my module and playing it and having a grand time. Look at you, professional game writer. (laughs) Yes, yes indeed. I can actually say that now. (laughs) Took me 25 years of like, you know, quote unquote gaming in a basement, but now here I am. It's okay. When you you come to Dallas for Gamer Nation Con in April, we'll, we'll nail you to a wall and pop your head. I appreciate that. You guys are very good about, you know, keeping me humble. We got to keep you humble. Yeah, we can't let you get too big. Mm-mm. Nope. Nope. No. No. Who do you think I am, Keith Capel? I know, right? I know. I know. Pretty soon you'll be running your own adventure writing academies. Um, I know. Jesus. <laughs> so actually, I've got news on that. Um, and to talk about uh, our other big piece of convention news, which is, of course, Gamer Nation Con 6. Um, yes. So in the in the hiatus that we, we've had over the past couple months, uh, we actually ran and funded a Kickstarter for Gamer Nation Con 6. Um, like we do, like we do. Uh, so this is, uh, year six is coming up, um, April 4th through 7th, 20, 2019 here in Plano, Texas. Um, and, uh, we ran the Kickstarter and it was the most successful convention Kickstarter we've ever had. Um, uh, hands down. Uh, and it went extremely well. We hit every single stretch goal, uh, and we almost completely sold out. We have less than 20 tickets for the convention still available. Um, and they will become available for purchase through our online registration system in January. And we will make big announcements for that. So if you would like to meet us, um, myself, Phil, Dave, um, as well as uh, the hosts of many of our other podcasts that are going to be coming um, to uh, D20 Radio's own convention, Gamer Nation Con, uh, you can do so in April. Um, and uh, obviously, I would recommend following the Order 66 fo- podcast Facebook page. Give us a like. Um, also, the Gamer Nation Con Facebook page, where we will post announcements. And if you uh, don't haven't secured your ticket yet and you want to come, uh, we'll provide the link where you can go on and, and purchase yourself a ticket. Um, but back to Keith Cappell. Um, we actually are coordinating with him um, and others in the Adventure Writing Academy uh, that he helped co-found, where they're going to be putting on several sessions and writing clinics at the con this year. Dude. Uh, so that's going to be super exciting. So if, if RPG writing is something that you're interested in, you really want to get into, um, or really beef up your skills, we're going to have some, some live events and, uh, and do that. And all that's going to be announced in, in January when our events registration, uh, opens up. So, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be epic. Um, in January, we will open up, uh, event registration, uh, excuse me, event submission in January. Um, along with the ability to purchase additional tickets. Um, and, and then, uh, like we did last year in March, uh, we will open up event registration where you can actually sign up for events through the online system. Uh, but super exciting, man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. The theme for this year's Gamer Nation Con or next year's Gamer Nation Con is supers, superheroes. 
Um, and uh, we have some exciting stuff planned. What are you running? Are, what, what are you? Because you you've practically already done this, but what are you running for 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 Gamer Nation Con Six in the theme of the con? Uh, I am. For those of you who are familiar with the this the kind of a lore, background lore of Fallout, there is a comic book company in there called Hubris Comics, and they release a series. They have a, a series of comics focused on heroes called the Un- the uh, the Unstoppables. Uh, Grognak, the Barbarian, the Silver Shroud, uh, the Mistress of Mystery, and all these other heroes. Uh, in the Fallout games, you can actually like portray some of these characters because you go and you find like the costumes that from like TV series that they were going to, that they were in production at the time the bombs fell. So I'm putting together a Fallout module that where the characters are people who have assumed the identities of the Unstoppables. That's epic. That's going to be so much fun. Uh, I am also hoping to have another um, City of Heroes themed module with the same heroes from last year. Uh, except instead of last year when you thought this fought the Circle of Thorns, this year I'm fairly certain that the enemy is going to be the fifth column. Hmm. And of course, the content you're producing for this uh, is, is part of our Kickstarter rewards um, as it becomes available. Um, yep. So uh, those who pledge to the Kickstarter will get the virtual compact. Um, we've already had two things become available for the virtual compact, uh, created by me. Um, two genius things. Aw, thank you. Um, familiar is just quirky, but, but I, 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 I will be running it. I've written two Genesis themes, um, both of which I will be running at Gamer Nation Con 6. The first is Familiar, where the PCs literally play familiars, uh, you know, magical familiars in a fantasy setting. Um, you play as animals. Uh, which is going to be kind of interesting, but the other one I, I I really love and put a lot put a lot of work into, and uh, big props to actually um, Ian Houlihan, uh, GM Hooli, um, and Caitlin Davies, uh, uh, GM Caitlin from the Dice Pool Podcast, for also stepping up to do major development duties on this with me. Um, Aegis, my cosmic Green Lantern inspired superhero setting uh, for uh, Genesis, which I will be running the living hell out of at Gamer Nation Con Six. So. I'm going to need to play that. Sure. Dude, I'm down. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, I'm, 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 I'm all on board. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a barrel of fun. Um, so really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it because we got to, we have a small horde coming down from, from uh, my region this year, hopefully. Mm. Yeah. There's like a group of like uh, six, maybe seven of us coming down. Oh dear. That's, Ooh. That, that's a lot of alcohol. The, the New Englanders <laughs> arrive. That's a lot of alcohol in one place, especially if the yeah. especially if the Canadians come, and if the Norwegians come, it's just going to be a saturation of alcoholism, uh, and metal. So, uh, we'll we'll have to deal with that as it comes. So, absolutely, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. But honestly, if people want to know more about the convention, um, obviously, or anything else we do, what's the best place for them to go and do and be? That would be by following D20 Radio on the Facebooks for news and podcast info on a daily basis. Uh, you can like the Order 66 podcast Facebook page and join the D20 Radio group for a lively discussion on a daily basis. Lively! You can also follow the GMs on Twitter at D20 Radio. And we post and tweet show info and announcements regularly. That we do. That we mm-hmm. do. So, all right, Phil. Uh... Do you want to get into the meat of tonight's show? Because I think it's pretty exciting. Shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it.
Oh, man. Do we have a tentative title for tonight's meet? The Deep End of the Dice Pool. Or How Difficulty Should Work and How You Should Be Using It. Mm. Almost six and a half years ago, because it was Gen Con 2012, uh, the beta for Edge of the Empire was released to the world. Five and a half years ago, uh, the Edge of the Empire core rulebook was upon us. And in all that time, players and GMs have been falling in love with the narrative dice system. They've been learning it, mastering it, making it their own. That love even led to the creation of a generic system in Genesis. But for those of us Star Wars fanatics who get our jolliest of jollies tossing setback dice at lightsaber swings and building our dice pools for jumps to hyperspace, this game, this system, is what, what would you call it, Phil? Mature at this point? Mm. Mm, seasoned. Seasoned. It's a seasoned system. We know it. We love it. We've tweaked it. It's in our bones. It's in our instincts as game masters. But after five years, the question is how instinct, learned instinct, interacts with three 400-page core rulebooks. Because for some time, uh, and for some people, including us at times, the biggest hurdle for this mature system remains perhaps the most fundamental aspect of it. Difficulty. Now, we all understand difficulty. It's keenly described in the core rulebooks. But we also have our learned instincts. So what happens when the two conflict? And honestly, a, a listener question from GM Matt elucidates this problem brilliantly. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you be so kind? Absolutely. Hello, Master GMs. I've been thinking about dice difficulty as it relates to story. This has been something that I've struggled with, and even after 50-plus sessions, I'm still trying to nail it down. My issue is this. How do you effectively let the situation dictate dice difficulty? In other words, how do you sufficiently reward players for good plans, or conversely, how do you modify opposed checks to account for the NPC's background and point of view? A couple examples. A group of four stormtroopers engage the PCs. One of the PCs tries to get the troopers to ditch their posts and run away with a coercion check. In this case, the difficulty would be set by the trooper's discipline, which in this case is probably two purple average difficulty equal to their willpower. Narratively, we know that the stormtroopers are trained, searching the area on patrol, and had probable cause to attack the PCs. Realistically, there's not much of this probably going to scare these troopers away. In my game, I usually throw a couple black die into the difficulty pool to represent the fact that the troopers are probably going to follow orders and do their duty. However, a couple black dice doesn't always reflect how difficult this would be, narratively speaking. Should I be doing more? Another example goes in the other direction. In this case, the PCs develop a plan for a combat encounter. For example, one of the PCs throws a frag grenade into a pile of explosive barrels before a round to create a distraction at the onset of the fight. How do you sufficiently reward players for thinking out of the box, especially as it relates to dice pools? Thanks in advance. If you answer this on the podcast, please be sure to also leave a hard copy of your answer in the tomb of the fallen Jedi with sufficient clues spread throughout the galaxy to find it. I'm more likely to read it there since I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Cheers, GM Matt. Well, GM Matt, you are not alone. Uh, we've all experienced the problems that you've laid out in our games. Uh, this system is far from restrictive, and, and even the stop-a-bullet-thick core rulebooks, as full of rules as they are, are quite clear on actually encouraging the GM to modify rules such as difficulty when the situation warrants it. But what is the best way to do that modification? How do you represent difficulty correctly in your games, in the situations described by GM Matt and in others? 
Tonight, we are going to take you to the edge of the waters to stare into the depths of the difficulty abyss as it stares back at you. But with our help, you are not going to flinch. You're going to stare back confidently, then you're going to do a jackknife double Greg Luganus back flip tidal wave belly flop into those inky waters, and you're going to enjoy the swim. So grab those trunks and those bikinis, boys and girls, as we dive deep into the end of the dice pool with an in-depth look at difficulty tonight on your Order 66 podcast. So the topics for tonight. Yeah. While it might seem odd five plus years into this game to have a show about honestly such a core topic. <laughs> yeah. As Matt's email indicates, there is still a very important, it's still a very important topic. Uh, furthermore, as the game has matured, we've all gotten more and more comfortable with it. Now it's actually time when GMs are starting to question the difficulty rules in relation to what we know of Star Wars. Yeah. In other words, now is the perfect time for this question, really. Okay. And so tonight we're going to talk about it. Um, we're going to talk about core rules and concepts of difficulty. Call it a review, if you will. Uh, what the different levels of difficulty are and how you should use them in what in, and in what scenarios. How up to appropriately modify them as needed. Uh, and one important point to make, this discussion is about almost every skill check you can make except for combat. <laughs> okay. We're going to be talking about adjusting difficulties and measuring them appropriately tonight. But these tips and topics will rarely apply to combat checks. Combat checks have their own well-defined rules and difficulties, which are play-tested, tried, and true. With few exceptions, don't mess with them. Much agreement. They're working just fine. They're working just fine. Much agreement. So, let's talk about the rules. Um, that's duh rules. Uh, not to be confused with Da Rude and his epic. Or the Bears. Yeah, Sandstorm, yes. Um, let's talk about difficulty. Let's review some basics. Uh, guys, you're never too experienced uh, to review this stuff. Um, let's talk about, first and foremost, what the dice mean. Because a lot of GMs, unfortunately, think about this stuff the wrong way. Um, you know, and Matt, you know, when you, like, I was, I was, and you know, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, man, but like when you were talking about adding setback dice to the Stormtroopers, I was like, I was cringing a little internally inside. And I know, mm. I know, I know a lot of GMs think about this stuff sometimes in, in the wrong way. Um, we have three kinds of dice, okay? And they are used for different reasons. And, and, and I will start with the most basic, which are the difficulty dice themselves, those pesky purple eight-sided dice. Um, mm -hmm. Now, as we'll come to, your difficulty decisioning really starts here. This is the first thing you should think of when you think of difficulty. The number of purples is the inherent difficulty of the task from zero to five of those dice. Everything from a rando skill check to blasting a stormtrooper to negotiating the sale of a speeder. It all is, think of it first and foremost in terms of zero to five of those dice. What is the inherent difficulty of the task? Uh, which moves on to the times when those purple dice change, and that's over to challenge dice. Mm -hmm. The red 12-siders of doom! Doom! These are the only dice to have despair symbols on them. Uh, these dice are all about upgrades. Once you've established the core difficulty in purples, you can potentially upgrade that negative pool a number of times, turning a purple into a red each time you do. And we'll talk about when in a minute. Okay. And the third type of difficulty die is the setback die, those black six-siders, perhaps the most underutilized or overutilized die in your game, depending on the GM. 
Mm. Uh, we're going to talk about that in depth, but these dice are about circumstances, not the core difficulty, and not the things that make the core difficulty inherently trickier, but other things that are just there to fuck with you. Uh, things that make it harder, but are tangentially related to the difficulty of what you're trying to do. Right. So, so let's start with the basics, and okay. that being the base difficulty. Ah. Coming to the core of one of GM Matt's questions, the very the first task you must undergo is determining the core or base difficulty. How many purple dice a task is worth. And you've got some options. Okay. First is opposed checks. We're going to take a big step forward here before we take a step back and talk about opposed checks. Often, especially for social checks or for computer checks made to slice against another user, the difficulty for a check is opposed. This is actually one of the easiest things to figure out. You take the positive dice pool of the target's post skill and turn all the positive dice into negative dice. Give me, give, so, give, give me an example. All right. So you've got a opposing uh, computer sysops individual, imperial sysops op operative, who has an intellect of three and two ranks of computers. So his dice pool for doing anything with computers is two yellows and a green. So if you're making a check against that person, it becomes a difficulty of two reds and a purple. Okay. Yellows become red, greens become purple. Okay. So, you know, also, I'm trying to buy a speeder from a dealer at a discount. My negotiation is opposed by his haggling skills. His negotiation pool is three green. That means my opposed difficulty for my negotiation check is three purple. Okay. So I think it's important to understand also uh, when we're talking about opposed difficulties, when to use them and when not to. And, mm. and as we'll come to, when to modify them. But in general, there's a few hard and fast rules that are laid out in the core rule books. And if, we're gonna, if we wanted to sum them up really quickly, any check where your skill is directly pitted against another person's equate to an opposed difficulty, with a few exceptions. Mm. Social skills are almost always opposed. Um... Also, the other big point, never use opposed difficulties for combat checks. No. Okay. Those are, those are the basic big summaries for opposed skills. So um, now that we've taken that step forward, Phil, and we've talking about that, uh, let's take our step back and talk about core difficulties. Right on. When a check is not opposed, then you have difficulty levels. Right. Core rulebook's outline is pretty clear in the first chapter. You've got six, well, technically seven right. levels of difficulty. <laughs> right. Uh, as a GM, you should know these levels like the back of your hand, not just what the book says, but what it means in other scenarios and situations. Okay. So we'll start with no difficulty, a simple check, zero purple dice, something so basic and routine that the outcome is rarely in doubt. Is it possible to fail this task? Sure. Positive dice could all come up blank, but it is highly unlikely, although it has happened every now and then. I, when I have seen it, yes. Someone makes an initiative check and just does nothing. Someone makes a recovery check and just does nothing. Yep. Uh, so you might think, why would you even roll this? Well, the GM wants to know the magnitude of success. You still have difficulty dice in the form of setback dice that could apply, um, you know, example, not even a moron would miss that shot, but it's raining buckets, so that complicates things. Right, okay. Um, but, 
you know, you, you've also got a situation where you might, you know, it might just represent the fact that, yeah, it should be easy to catch your breath, but every now and then you just, you just get winded and you just can't catch your breath. And that just comes back of a, you know, an attempt to recover your strain, but you roll all blank on your positive dice and you don't recover any strain. There you go. So it happens. So, so what's next? Well, we have simple zero purple dice. Uh, after that, we have easy one purple die. Um, this is a task that poses very little real challenge to most characters, but failure is still possible if something goes wrong, although it, it, that should be surprising. Um, shooting a target at short range, um, tending to a bruise or a scrape, uh, finding food on a lush tropical planet, um, mm. uh, yeah, searching the net uh, for the nearest Imperial Recruitment Center. Um, you know, these are things that, that any moron should be able to accomplish. You, you would expect success. Is it possible to fail? Yeah, but that would be considered the, the unlikely event. So mm -hmm. that's easy. Okay. After that, we get to the pretty much the standard check for a lot of things. And that's just a simple average check to purple dice. Mm -hmm. This is a routine action where success is common enough to be expected, but failure isn't surprising. Um, striking a foe while engaged, shooting at medium range. Stitching up a nasty gash, uh, getting a crowd of civilians' attention. Mm, okay. After average, we move into hard, three purple dice. Now, this is something that is should be much more demanding of a character. Uh, now, while success is feasible, failure is more likely. Um, setting a broken bone correctly. Uh, shooting a foe at long range. Picking a, a complex locking mechanism. Uh, hacking a business server. Um <coughs> Uh, those are things that kind of fall into that that hard difficulty range of three purple dice. After that is daunting. Four purple dice. Now when you start putting out this number of a difficulty dice on the table, PCs sit up and take notice. Mm -hmm. This is something that's going to tax a character, push them to the limits of their skill proficiency. While success is possible, it is exceedingly difficult, and even those with proper tools, training, and resources will likely experience failure more often than success. Uh, performing microsurgery or grafting an implant, finding food on Tatooine, sharpshooting a foe in extreme range, hacking an imperial database. Yeah, um, that's the that's the that's the, that's the stuff that should make your PCs like uh, get worried. <laughs> okay. Um, after that, we have uh, the the final official level of difficulty, which is formidable uh, at five purple dice. Um, these are things that are, at five dice, they're nigh impossible. Um, characters should expect to fail, almost always, but with the right planning, training, tools, resources, circumstances, success is possible, if unlikely. Um, cloning a brand new body. Uh, surviving, uh, finding food, shelter, water on a planet with no breathable atmosphere. Um, searching the net for Palpatine's birthday. Uh... <laughs> Uh, picking a lock with no visible or discernible mechanism uh, on it. Um, those are, are what you would call formidable. And typically speaking in your games, that's going to be the, the the most difficult thing that your PCs will ever attempt to do. You, you may even never have that difficulty in your game unless they suggest something crazy. It is worth calling out, though, that some tasks are so impossible that the GM declares an auto-failure without a roll. It's just that hard. Uh... These are impossible tasks for, like, using soothing words and reason to calm a raging rancor. <laughs> Scaling a sheer, perfectly smooth wall without tools or any other mechanism. Throwing a grenade to put out a fire. 
I've had a PC suggest that. Not surprised. Uh, optionally, the GM may allow for such a check to be made, but it requires the PC to spend a destiny point with no benefit other than the ability to make the roll, and it's still five difficulty dice. Yeah. I recall in the beta, they had this impossible task level, which was six dice. And then when the core rulebook came out, it was like, you know, no, we're never going to go above five. But if they want to do something impossible, they can make the five roll with the destiny point. So it was kind of interesting. After playing the beta so much, there was a period of about six months where I didn't realize that rule change had happened. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's there. So, okay, we've gone through these, these six, nay, seven difficulty levels. And we've kind of sure. given you guys some examples about what they are. Why is knowing this so important? Because, Phil, of the pool noodle principle. Explain. So you can't just gloss over these difficulty levels. You you, you can't. And there, there's a reason we're going over this, this, this rather simplistic stuff on the show tonight. They are the most important thing that you as a GM should know about difficulty. Because these levels are the barometer by which all checks should be measured. All of them. Every single one. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that regardless of what the rules say, every difficulty pool should be measured against the feeling that each of these levels provides. And this is something that we call the pool noodle principle. To cook pasta properly before serving, you take it out of the pot and, and you, you kind of give it a feel. All right. Is it too firm? Is it too soft? The same has to apply to the difficulty pool. The GM should look at the number of dice in the pool, not including setback dice, which we'll talk about, and measure it against those difficulty levels. Does it feel right? If it doesn't, add or remove purple dice. So Let's take some examples then. Okay, give me examples. Examples. All right. Um, hey, let's go back to what GM Matt had yeah. laid out in on his, his question. First one, point blank. Uh, the Stormtrooper Persuasion Conundrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually the most effective example of the pool noodle principle in action, I think. Uh, in the Star Wars canon and Legends of Material, it is well known that stormtroopers have imperial conditioning, meaning that unlike simple soldiers, their minds have been hardened against treason, discouragement, or persuasion. They are fanatical. Yes. So what happens when a PC wants to coerce them to abandon their post? Per the raw, that coercion check would be an opposed check against their discipline of three purple dice. Stormtroopers do have a willpower of three. Yes. But if you apply the pool noodle principle, does three purple dice uh, for your, your, your typical check feel right for scaring a stormtrooper with imperial conditioning from abandoning their post? No, it does not. What feels right would probably be increasing that by one. Probably. Daunting feels right. Yeah. Success should be technically possible, but highly unlikely in this case. So I'll bump up that check to four purple base. Yeah. Now, I've even heard of GMs who have added a new ability to Stormtrooper stat blocks called Imperial Conditioning, and that any attempt to alter or change their mental or emotional state of this character has the difficulty increased by one. I'm one of those GMs. <laughs> there you go. Um, because I'm a stickler. And I've even seen stat blocks where you have like a seasoned Imperial uh, Trooper who has like improved Imperial Conditioning, and you increase it by plus two. It actually makes it a, actually makes it uh, a five purple check to try and nice. coerce them or change their mind because the lore around Star Wars is that strong. But again, you apply the pool noodle principle 
and you go, okay, this doesn't feel right. So screw what the stat block says, make it feel right. Right. Um, the other good example I have for the pool noodle principle is the Toydarian junk dealer. Uh, this is an actual example from an early game I once ran, and this is an example in the opposite direction. I had the PCs were trying to, and this was this was a throwaway encounter, man. They were trying to buy a simple ground speeder for transport on Tatooine. So I had them locate a junk dealer who was, of course, a Toydarian. Um, now. Using the opposed check, uh, the Toydarian had two yellow, one green negotiation pool, right? Because that's the stat block I had. Um, and the PCs, when you translate that to the two red and a purple, these were beginner characters. They literally could not succeed. That two red, one purple was so hard for them as beginner PCs, they outright failed the check twice. And when you follow the rules for negotiation, that can actually drive the price up. And it drove the price up so much that they literally couldn't afford the land speeder. Um, you know, and this was years ago, but as, as a GM, I should have applied the pool noodle principle and asked myself if this menial task that was supposed to be a five minute game time throwaway scene was really worth three base dice of difficulty. It wasn't. And I should have reduced that difficulty appropriately. Hindsight. Yeah. 2020. So. We're going to return to the pool noodle principle at the end of our discussion and talk about how and where it applies to difficulty calculation. But what you have to remember is that opposed difficulties per raw are not the end-all be-all. Yeah. Whether it's opposed difficulties or listed difficulties, the pool noodle principle should always apply. And that means you have need to live, breathe, eat, drink, and shit difficulty levels. Pretty much. What those levels mean? And how to read that barometer is essential in applying the principle and having accurate and meaningful difficulties in your games. So that's base difficulty and the pool noodle principle, which really covers purple dice. Let's talk about the reds. Upgrades and challenge dice specifically. So I don't think any conversation, Phil, about difficulty would be appropriate without discussing these wonderful red D12s and when they come into play. No, they make things exciting. They make things very exciting. When establishing the difficulty of a non-combat check, the first thing you do is determine that base that we just talked about. It's either, and again, it's either a base level or it's an opposed check. Now, if it's an opposed check, problem solved. You don't got to worry about upgrades and challenge dice. Typically, it should already be taken into account for the opposed check. But if it's a base difficulty or a listed difficulty, then you need to consider the possibility of upgrades. Right. The upgrade is when one of those purple dice is converted into a red challenge die. And Phil, there are many reasons in the raw that this can happen, yes? Right. The first and most common is the adversary talent. Hmm. While it normally only appears to combat check difficulties, the GM is well within his or her rights to apply it to other checks as well. But as a word of caution, our advice is not to apply it to opposed checks. Hmm. As these difficulties are almost always upgraded naturally by virtue of the negative dice pool conversion. And the foe's XP spent is already taken into account for those difficulties. Very true. And much like the adversary talent, there are other talents and abilities that can also lead to upgrades, right? I mean, there's a there's a host of defensive talents that PCs and NPCs can, uh, can possess that lead to full-on upgrades to difficulties, especially against combat attacks. Right, so. right. So what's next? Uh, what, destiny point expenditure? Destiny point expenditure. The GM and players can always spend a destiny point for a difficulty upgrade, turning one of those purples into a red. Yes. That just pushes the dice pool economy back and forth. It, it does. Uh, and and it's, it's 
again, something you should be doing. We've talked about that in other shows. Absolutely. The other reason for an upgrade um, outside of the raw uh, listed, but still there in the books if you hunt for it, is what I colloquially call the recipes for despair. Um, this is a very loose guideline um, that Jay Little first turned me on to, but it's an important one. Sometimes the scenario at hand just warrants an upgrade uh, for a very specific reason that's unique to that scenario. It's something that no core book can ever think of at the time to plan out every scenario. Um, for very specific reasons, though, and those reasons being there's a lot that could get disastrous very quickly. Um, this determination, again, it, it's outside of the core rules which govern general scenarios. Doing this without a destiny point being spent should be a rare thing, but when applied correctly and sparingly, it is essential to correctly reflecting difficulty. And here's the question you have to ask yourself. Does the inherent situation make the chance of a despair more likely? And if so, it's time for an upgrade. Now, I've I've actually, um, it, it's funny that you say that this came from Jay Little, um, because I've had some insight into this type of use of, uh, of upgrades. Um, general, uh, after some conversations that I've had with folks at, at, at Fantasy Flight, generally upgrading the difficulty is left to opposed checks, adversary talents, and story points, or yes. destiny points. Yes, Recent FFG mod modules don't say go ahead and upgrade the difficulty because you know, just out of hand because that lessens the impact of those previous reasons for the upgrades. Yes. So in official published stuff from hand fantasy fight games, you won't see this, but it's, it's, it's cool that, you know, Jay little says himself, yeah, there are some situations that just warrant a difficulty upgrade. So aside from spending a story point uh, or destiny point, aside from doing X, aside from doing Y, just upgrade the check. If there's a possible hilarious outcome of despair. And that's the key, but you have to use this extremely sparingly if you're going to use it sure. in your home games. And sure. it, kind of what I said earlier. The only examples where I still do this on occasion, flame projectors, <laughs> <laughs> um, which are which are kind of OP anyway. Um, you know, if, if I if I have if I have a PC in a possession of a piece of gear that is overpowered, and, and honestly, that's my fault. Okay, if they are. Um, yeah. as a GM, um, uh, you know, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna upgrade that because dude, you've got a fuel tank strapped to your freaking arm right now and you're about to shoot fire at somebody and you're in the middle of a firefight. There's a lot of things that could potentially go wrong with a flame projector. Um, what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? Um, the other time I will still occasionally pull out this rule of cool recipe for despair and do it an upgrade without spending a story point or relying on talents is when my PCs decide to get way too creative with explosives. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and sometimes, sometimes this can even, this can even play into the, into that difficulty appropriately. It's like, okay, you know what? Uh, you want to throw a grenade to put out a fire? Um, Okay, um, uh, uh, you know what? I'm not even going to make that impossible. I'm going to make that daunting. Five purple dice, three upgrades, okay? I mean, that or two, okay? Where there's the possibility of hilarity, where so much can go wrong with what you're about to do. Um, you know, those are, those are the times I've pulled it out. But honestly, man, that a situation like that might happen in all the games I play once a year, once or twice a year. It's just, you know, something to consider. You know, yeah. So, 
But but typically there are some times where upgrading once for a Destiny point just isn't enough. Some sometimes it's just not. Um, considering the situation at hand, but on the whole, um, that aside, adversary talent, other talents and abilities, Destiny point expansion, those are the big reasons to do the upgrade. But that has to be done after the base difficulty is determined, right? Right, and after the pool noodle principle is applied. Okay. Uh, these upgrades, depending on how many there are, may even increase the size of the dice pool, though that's uncommon to rare. Yeah. Uh, but even in this case, when that happens after you've determined the correct sizing of your difficulty pool. So if you've got something, you've already set the difficulty, and after all the upgrades are at two red dice, and for whatever reason you're upgrading it again, you had a purple die. Yeah. If it then gets upgraded beyond that, that purple die becomes a red and you continue on until all the upgrades are accounted for. Correct. But it's important that you do the sizing and apply the pool and little principle beforehand. Right. First. Does it feel right? Exactly. So the last part, uh, uh, the last part of, uh, of the difficulty calculation is circumstance and the setback die. Yes. The all too often underused or misused setback die. The humble black D6 which we've talked about ad nauseum in prior episodes, <laughs> is one of the most useful tools in the GM's toolbox. But you must use it correctly. When, when is an appropriate time to use it? Environment and circumstance. Um, it's often said that setback dice are used to represent environmental, physical, or circumstantial factors that will impact your difficulty. That's a good way to think about it. Here's a simpler way. If something's going to make the check harder, and that's something has nothing to do with the skills of your opponent or the inherent difficulty of the task, then it's a setback die. It is usually the result of temporary or situational influences. Right. So why a setback? When you consider the, all the above, there's a host of raw reasons that the setback dice come into play in the difficulty pool. Mm -hmm. The first and most common reason the PCs will encounter the black die, armor defense. Yeah. Armor that adds defense or talents that add defense. The base difficulty of the check is set by the combat rules. Defense adds setback dice to that. Yes. Um, another common reason you'll be adding setback dice, uh, the weather or the environment. Uh, hard rain, blinding your vision. Darkness, low light. Uh, taking a shot from a racing speeder that's juking back and forth. The base difficulty of your check, what you apply the pool noodle principle to, is set by the inherent difficulty of your task. The environment is just an add-on to that difficulty. doesn't change the core. It just adds setback. What else? Uh, so, uh, injury and damaged equipment can add setback dice. You've got a critical injury affecting you. Your blaster is damaged. The terminal you're slicing with is ancient or damaged by the current firefight. Uh, your inherent difficulty is no, has no bearing on injury or damage. <sighs> Uh, your your inherent difficulty has no bearing on injury or, or damaged equipment. These things, it's just simple to add setback dice to the total. Yeah. It's a situational effect. It's not a complexity of the system you're using. Yeah. It's because there's a blaster hole through the computer terminal you're trying to use. Exactly. If the terminal was healthy, your base difficulty would be blank. But it's not, so we add setback dice. Right. Um, another common one, especially relating back to uh, Matt's email, uh, is suspicious circumstance. Um, your party charmer is attempting to schmooze a guard with a phony story, but you all are not wearing appropriate identification or uniforms. You're in a restricted area that you have no place being in. Um, this is likely an opposed check. 
uh, making a bold-faced lie to someone has its difficulty set by the person you're telling the lie to and how big the lie is. Those uh, extra circumstances that I mentioned earlier are add-ons to that base difficulty in the form of setback dice. Finally, there's like this whole host of other situations, looks like surprise, character actions, and other environmental factors. Sometimes the characters just do things that modify the difficulty meaningfully without changing the core or base difficulty. Uh, the guarded stance maneuver is a good example of this in Raw. Yes. Uh, GM Matt gave another example at the beginning of this discussion where a PC threw a frag grenade into a pile of explosive barrels before the round to create confusion at the onset of a firefight. Uh, that's a great example of a setback die in action. In this case, the PC has set up setback dice for a round to the initiative or combat checks the foes will make. In essence, the PCs have created a temporary environmental circumstance. Yes. So, okay, Phil. With this knowledge about setbacks, let's talk about setbacks versus base difficulty. Because, Do it. like, the problem most GMs have with setback and difficulty is is either one... They don't use setbacks when they should. Um, they apply the environmental or, and, and circumstantial uh, issues to the base difficulty, using uh, upping that instead of adding setback dice. Or right. they overuse it, which is kind of what Matt's email uh, alluded to earlier, where you toss in setback dice to represent circumstances where you should be instead increasing the base difficulty. Right. Uh, um, and and it's, it's important... It's extremely important to have that right. And Phil, I know that's actually a point you wanted to talk about next because the base difficulty and how difficult that base difficulty should be, that should not be affected by any specific talents you might have uh, uh, of, of which are extremely important that you will talk about. But you know, yes. in, in both those scenarios, either not using setback dice when you should or using them when you shouldn't, What's happening is that you have GMs that are trying to use the pool noodle principle, but they're doing it before the pasta goes into the pot, or they're doing it after they've already put the pasta on the plate. It doesn't work. You have to do it at the right time, and that is when you're establishing and setting that base difficulty. But, but sidebar this for me, man, because you had an interesting point about this that you brought up. Yeah, um, I, any topic uh, that includes a discussion about setback die, you almost need to also talk about the setback removal talents. Um, there's a bevy of talents out there that remove setbacks from skill checks, gearhead, skilled jockey, street smarts, etc. As a GM, you should still be adding setback dice to checks involving those skills for those PCs, even though you know the PC is just going to remove them. Yep. You have to give them that visual validation of good talent choices by allowing them the satisfaction of seeing how difficult the check should be and then how much easier it is for them because they, uh, because of their ability to fix an engine or fly a speeder are not hindered at all by poor visibility, lighting, or steadiness of the vehicle. Absolutely. If you are judging difficulty incorrectly... And you say, okay, wow, this is a two purple difficulty, but I think it should be more, so I'm going to add some setback dice. You're allowing that talent to be applied in an inappropriate way. That talent is very powerful, and you've got to validate it, but at the same time, you also have to apply it appropriately. It's there to remove those environmental and circumstantial problems. It's not, not there to make the inherent difficulty of the task easier. That difficulty is what it is, and talents really can't do anything about that. So right. that, that's why this is so important. Um, and all of this, guys, that we've talked to at this point leads us to 
the final thing we want to talk about for this, which is the recipe for appropriate difficulty. We, we, have, we have reviewed the basics of difficulty. We've introduced you to the pool noodle principle. Let's talk about how, how all of this fits together. We're going to give you the appropriate recipe for your difficulties, and we're even going to go through some real-world examples in an ad hoc way. Um, so let's, let's talk about the recipe. There are four steps in the recipe for this pasta making of difficulty. Um, step one, what is the base difficulty of the check? Yep. For combat checks, what does the rule say the base is? That's it. Yep. <laughs> you go by that. For an opposed check, work up that dice pool. Look at the person's skills. Look at their characteristics. Set it up. Any other check, what's the level of difficulty it should be at? Do you think it's an average difficulty that just about anyone could do, fail or not? Do you think someone should be able to do this without too much of difficulty? Do you think it should be something that is outside the realm of standard possibility or your mild-mannered person? Yes. And dude, it's important to talk about listed difficulties because especially if you get into the skills chapter of, the, of these books, they often yeah. have listed difficulties for certain tasks, all right? Two of them, yeah. Where it's like, where it's like, hey, two purple, three. Okay, astrogation's a great example. Like, oh, hey, here's the difficulty. Depending on the scenario, here's the difficulty, okay? Uh, using some of those sidebar actions other than piloting them vehicles, like, you know, directing fire, uh, 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 fixing ship, uh, you know, those all have set difficulty. Look it up. There you go. There you go. There's set difficulty. So whether it's combat, opposed, or other, where you have a set difficulty, we then move to step two. Yep. Apply the pool noodle principle. Mm -hmm. Is it a combat check? Yes? Okay. Ignore the pool noodle principle and proceed to step three. <laughs> okay. If it's an opposed check or a set level difficulty, feel it. Apply the pool noodle principle. Does the number of dice feel right? Increase it or decrease it until it does. You know, it's an opponent. Go ahead. And remember what we're talking about here as far as like, does the number of dice feel right? Sure. The book says that this is a hard check. But if you're running like a base level character game and it's either at a convention module or you're just starting off with your friends, you've got something like you got a couple new people who, who you want to really, you know, get into the system, get into the game. Lower that difficulty. Yes. Make it fun. Make it fun if it's needed. Like, like okay, my, my Todarian junk dealer example, all right? They were beginner players, all right? I should have looked at three dice in that pool and been like, no, that's not worth it. This should be one or two dice. I should have done that, but I didn't, okay? Or it, it's an opposed check, and okay, yeah, it's two dice, okay? But based on the circumstances of the situation, or even like they're stormtroopers, it's three dice. God, it should really be four or five dice. These are stormtroopers. You're not going to scare them away from their post. All right, make that adjustment. So step one, determine the base difficulty. Step two, apply the pool noodle principle. Step three? Step three, upgrades. Upgrades. First, does the adversary talent apply? Are there any other talents that apply? Uh, is this a recipe for despair? Is this that one time a year you're going to do the, <laughs> the auto upgrade? <laughs> Um, also take a look because there are some rules that have upgrades kind of written into them. Um, navigating difficult terrain, for example, is one of them. If you're in a uh, vehicle that's traveling at higher speeds, you upgrade the difficulty of that check. Um, so, you know, keep an eye out for anything that mentions an upgrade. 
um, some critical injuries will uh, cause upgrades or, you know, some effects will create upgrades. Be on the lookout for those. Yeah. Uh, step four, the final step, setback. Are there other factors? Now, now that you've done this, now that you've established the difficulty, you've applied the pool noodle principle, and you've upgraded, potentially, are there other factors that will make things harder? If they are, apply setback dice appropriately. And step five, profit. Step five, profit, yes. <laughs> so step one, determine the base difficulty. Step two, apply the pool noodle principle if it's not a combat check. Step three, upgrades. Step four, setback. Follow those four steps in order to determine your difficulty appropriately. And you will avoid the mistakes of applying setback dice when you shouldn't, having a check that's too hard or too easy for the circumstances. That's what you got to do. So, Phil, I thought we could go off the rails here for the very end of this discussion and leave the show notes completely behind and go through right. some, some difficulty scenarios for some very common tasks in the game. We have nothing written down in the show notes for this. It's going to be completely off the cuff, so this could be an absolute disaster, but we're going to see how it goes. Um, completely ad lib. We're going to do it fast and loose. We're going to apply that four-step difficulty recipe for you all right now. Um, so, Phil, I have, a, I have a scenario for you. Hit me. Master GM, professional game writer. All right, kind I like the sound of that. Yeah, I really yeah, do. I know you do. Um, so, convention game. Yes, sir. Three experienced players at the table. Okay. Three brand new players at the table. Okay. All right. Um, the task in this particular case is the team is needing to sneak into an Imperial base. Okay. All right. Um, in this particular example, you know, and they're, they're off mod at this point, Okay. They, 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 they missed their checks. Uh, they were supposed to get smuggled in, but they, they messed up and they landed outside the base. Now they're totally off mod. You have to adjudicate this. They got to try and find a way to sneak into this base. Okay. Right? Um, now, whether they do this as a group check or individual, it's stealth. That's your difficulty. So yep. uh, talk me through this, man. Step one through four. How do you assign the difficulty for this? Um, uh, first of all, I want to take a look and see how experienced these, the characters are, how, what's their average dice pool? Like, is it like one yellow and a couple green? Okay. For the best one, if that's the case, then what I do is I then think about, okay, it's a stealth check. Uh, if the base is active on alert, it would be perception. If the base is base guards are just like doing their guard thing, it's vigilance. It's, it's an opposed check versus vigilance. Okay. Um, Thinking about how much I want to move the adventure forward or how hard I want to make this, likely what I would do is I would put it at a base difficulty of two, make it an average check, average vigilance for, uh, for you know, average vigilance for your average guard. Um, I would likely say, okay, these are guards. They're going to be vigilant. So they probably have at least one rank in vigilance. So that means the difficulty is going to get upgraded once because of the skill. Okay. Um, now if there are searchlights all, oh, you know, they're going in at night, but there's searchlights and it's a well-lit area. Um, uh, maybe I'll add a setback die in because you're trying to sneak through someplace that is very well lit. Very true. So that's, you know, I, I would start looking at those kind of scenarios. If it's, it's during the day, then, you know, same thing, you know, it's it, open terrain. If it's open if it's just like open territory searchlights all over the place, it's like lit up like a football field on Friday night, then 
two setback dice, you know, yeah. for, that, for that deck. Now, what's interesting about what you just communicated to me is if we lay the scenario out where it's like, look, it's an open stretch, cleared of anything, they've got 100 yards between where they're hiding and the entrance to the facility, and the place is lit up like Christmas, what you didn't say is, oh my God, that's daunting difficulty, okay? Which is where a lot of people's instincts would go. What you did was the appropriate thing. You said, okay, no, it's an opposed check, opposed by the vigilance of the guards, here's what that difficulty is, okay? He applied the pool noodle principle, all right, and said, yep, that's about right for what it needs to be. Um, he upgraded it because it's an opposed check. Upgrade was already taken care of. And then, and then you use the environment and circumstance to start adding setback dice at that point. Yes, because the fact that it's lit, the fact that there's no perceivable cover is an environmental situation. Yes. It is a condition of the environment. It is not based on someone's skill or it's not based on something inherent, someone's inherent difficulty. As I said in the beginning, if this was like just your average like starting characters, or maybe they had like you know twenty or thirty XP under their belt, that's what I'd do it. If I was looking at these characters and they had a hundred or two hundred XP, um, I would probably you know I, I'd make the the opponents that they're going up against would be more skilled. They'd be better skilled. The guards would inherently be better, and that's where you kind of have to be able to judge the fact that, oh, this is a quote-unquote level one scenario, as opposed to like a quote-unquote level five scenario. In all the other role-playing games, when you put the PC against challenges that are appropriate to the amount of experience they've they've gone through, difficulty checks are higher. They're they're more difficult to reflect the fact that PCs have better skills, and you kind of want to keep that same hit for hit as far as I want this to be an average check for them. Well, if their average number of dice are three and four dice, then kind of that difficulty needs to be, you know, they need to be facing opponents that are appropriate for the abilities they have. Yes. So. Yes. Now, we had an interesting, so question. Like, we had an interesting question. If it was like a 200 or 300 point character, yeah. then I would say base three. I would agree with yeah. that. We had a question about this in chat, I think it's worth asking. We have one of our listeners, uh, Tyler, said, well, how, how often would you roll the NPC's vigilance? The answer is never. Um, never at that point. And this goes back to another principle we've talked about. Whenever possible, if the, if the NPC is going to be rolling something to detect your PCs, give the onus to the player characters. Give them the action. Make that vigilance an opposed difficulty for their stealth. Okay, and make them make the check. Now, how often would they have to roll the stealth check? That's entirely up to you. Um, you know, if, if, if this is just an ancillary part of the game, um, one stealth check could cover an hour of work that gets them into the facility. You could turn it into two or three checks with multiple chances of failure. Um, that's entirely up to you and how you want to play it. So i got a scenario for you now. Okay. Um, you've got a group of PCs who are in the middle of a chase. They are chasing an adversary through a construction zone uh, up on the 7th or 8th story of a building that is mostly just framework at this point. Okay. Uh, there are, so they're running, through the ch they're running through the area. There's Maybe there's like some very narrow beams for them to run across. Uh, we'll say that the, it is dark out and there is a light rain occurring. And uh, what is so the PCs are are trying to uh, uh, navigate this terrain, um, be they athletic checks or be they coordination checks. Okay. What's what's the difficulty in this? We'll say the characters are you know, 50 fifty x 
50 XP? 50 XP at best. Okay. Um, so step one is the base difficulty. So all of the things being equal, chasing someone through a construction zone um, is, is going to be an opposed check, all right, against whoever they're chasing. So yep. uh, what's, the, what's the athletics or coordination of whoever they're chasing? Well, I, well here's the thing. Um, chase rules tend to be there's a kind of a set difficulty that each party is making a role against, and then whoever scores more successes either increases or decreases range bands. Okay, forgive me. I, I, I didn't realize we were, we were going into an actual chase chase encounter or chase scene. Yes, so that would, that yeah, would we'll be... Say, yeah, we'll say it's a chase scene. Okay, well, um, in, in that case, uh, for, for both of them, so let's go into step one and step two. Um, sure. For, for, for step one, I mean, honestly, I would keep it just running through a construction site. Um, I would keep it average since they're both going against it. Um, is kind of what I would do. Then as I went to step two and applied the pool noodle principle, if these are 50 XP characters, I'd probably bump this up to a three purple difficulty just because you, you know, the, the scenario has, has narrow beams, um, Mm -hmm. as you, as you described it. And that the, the inherent difficulty of just running through a construction site, um, high up in the air with narrow beams is probably going to be about three difficulty. And that fits in with the, um, the, the XP level of the party as well. Absolutely. Okay. Um, after that, I, I would I would look for upgrades. Um, so because uh, the, the adversary talent really shouldn't apply in this scenario because this is a chase scene. They're both rolling off that same difficulty. Um, mm-hmm. uh, however, I would totally spend a destiny point here um, to, to because because of the fact that they're eight stories up uh, to increase the uh, to upgrade the difficulty uh, to give them a chance of despair on this. Totally, oh, yeah. totally would do that. Um, and so at that point, I'd be looking at two purple and a red. Um, and then the last thing would be setback. Um, it's dark. That's a setback die. It's pouring rain. That's a setback die for, for all parties. So yeah, my total pool at the end would be, uh, one red, two purple, two black. Love it. Boom. That's it, people. That's it. That's, that, that's, that's it. That's as simple as it is to get this done. But it's important to talk about this, guys, and... <laughs> Matt, I, I hope this this conversation has gone a long way towards answering some of your questions um, that you have. And and for those of you even experienced GMs that are out there in, in this system, remember the pool noodle principle and apply these steps appropriately. Determine the base difficulty. Apply the pool noodle principle. Upgrades, setback. In that order. When you do this, you'll ensure that you have an appropriate difficulty for your party always that they're not going against something they shouldn't and that things aren't also too easy for them. And more importantly, you'll be able to provide appropriate validation and usage of those specific talents they have, whether those are defensive or setback tie removing, whatever it might be. So there we go. Any other final thoughts on that, Phil? No, I think you pretty much covered it, Chief. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, with that, I think it's time to go somewhere we haven't been in a very, very long time. Let me take that back, huh? Then you'll find what you need. <laughs> oh, it's 
some bags. Only got twenty dollars in my pocket. I'm looking for a come up. This is a black market. <laughs> What do you know? Welcome to Watto's Black Market, where the skeezy scoundrels of the Outer Rim Territories can procure the weapons and gear to make a living on the edge of that their empire just a little more tolerable. And tonight's trip to Watto's was brought to us uh, by an email from Julia Starkiller, and I hope that's your actual name, ma'am. I really do. Um, I really do. Uh, what, did, what did Julia email us? She sent us the following. Hello, Order 66. I found your podcast a couple months ago, and I've been burning through episodes during my commute. It's a great time to listen. I've been running a home game for an Age of Rebellion party for about six months, and my group has just discovered this system. Well, welcome to the party, Julia. Had glad you're here. Uh, the group are the group's a bunch of rebel spies, and I had them captured and locked up after being stripped of all tools and weapons. But then the saboteur in the group brings up the concealed escapes kit which she bought after Cyphers and Masks came out, and I didn't think anything of it. I made it a five-purple check to get out, and she still beat. <laughs> Mostly because this kit gives an upgrade to checks made with it, and it's this seems way overpowered for the cost. Can you talk about it on your show? Maybe have Watto talk about it? Thanks, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast because I'm too busy arguing with my players. <laughs> well, all right. So let's talk about this surprising piece of tech from Cyphers and Masks that, from the sound of it, totally derailed your planned session. So the Concealed Escape Kit is found on page 47 of Cyphers and Masks. It's a zero-encumbrance concealed kit hidden in the sole and heel of a shoe or boot. It contains a bunch of hidden tools designed to help a captive escape. It has a set of small wire cutters, a Dora steel file, a length of slice wire, a mini memory stick containing maps of the area the agent is in, a tiny single-use laser cutter, and a thin, flexible mono knife hidden in the length of the sole, which is actually a pretty stout weapon, all things considered. Damage is plus one, crit is on three, and has a pierce one quality. It is so small and designed to be unnoticeable and undetectable that any checks made to detect it have their difficulty upgraded twice. It is a non-restricted item with a rarity of seven. Yes, seven. And has a cost of 450 credits. But there's an important kicker. Using it upgrades the ability of any skullduggery or mechanics check made to escape confinement once. And this is the thing that really led to success for Julia's player, it sounds like. Yes. Well, there's an important factor you also shouldn't miss, Julia. And maybe this will allay some of your concerns. If you get past the raw and you really read into the description, it's clear, at least to me, that the intent is that this is a one-time use item. Um, you know, you, you can't make a knife or a length of wire or a file one-time use, but the description actually calls out that the laser cutter burns out after one round of use, and specifically saying it gives you just enough time to cut through a single lock or a bar out of a cell or a door window. Um, plus, the maps that are in the mem stick are customized for the mission the user's currently on. And all of this means to me as a GM that if a player were to whip this out and use it, they should be forced to spend another 450 credits on a new one afterwards. Or at least uh, a substantial fraction of that to replace the spent components to re-research and upload the mem stick. Um, you know, 
getting new maps, new laser cutter, and then of course repackaging that assembly tightly and in an incons- in a concealable way back into the shoe. I mean, Phil, am I am I off base with that, or are, are you reading into the same thing I am from that? No, I'm I'm reading into it too. And also, just speaking as someone who like uses files and cutting wheels and things like that. You buy Dremel cutting wheels in stacks of 50. <laughs> you absolutely could blow through an entire file just using on on one task. Yeah. So it's it's completely conceivable that in addition to being able to be fit into the sole of a shoe, that the act of using it once just destroys it. It wears it out. It it files itself down to smoothness as you're as you saw through whatever it is you're sawing through. There you go. Also, it sounds like the player just went and bought it. And like based on Julia's email and, and with a rarity of seven, this thing, though it is not restricted, that's going to be hella hard to locate in the first place. It um, is. I that's mean, a base four. Yeah. Difficulty? Yeah. Yeah. Base four negotiation difficulty just to find it. Just to find it. And that's something. And that's, that's assuming that you're on a planet that doesn't have a rarity modifier to it. Exactly. So that's something. So when you consider that fact, Julia, and the fact that this is kind of a one-time use item, I don't think it's overpowered. Um, I don't know, but that's that's my thoughts. So. No, it's not. Over, I don't think it's overpowered. I also think that it's you know, honestly, good on that PC for coming up with it. Hey, that's very true. Very true. Um, but you know, this is a really cool piece of tech. Um, are there any other cool uses for it? Or can you just spend 450 credits and success on badass streetwise checks to find one or negotiation checks to find one and it's just a uh, and it's a just in case thing kind of a get out of jail free card I mean no I think there's other things you could do with it um, let's talk about the mono knife you kind of talked about it earlier I'm sorry 450 credits um, for what is essentially a vibroblade that upgrades difficulties to locate it twice that's not a bad bargain. No, no, um, it's not. And and although after you pull it out of the shoe, uh, it, it's just a basic, you know, mono blade at that point. It's not hidden. Um, you know, that blade is not one time use. So you got a knife uh, with some pretty stout stats um, that, you know, for the very least until you first pull it out is going to be nigh impossible to locate. And and that's 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 a pretty good bargain. I'm thinking assassinations. OK. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking insurgency missions. How, how do you get a weapon through a search or, uh, you know, scan detection, things like that. This is how. This is one of those easy ways you can point to to do it. Right. Okay. Uh, we also got the, that laser cutter. Uh, yeah. yeah, it only lasts for a round, and it's designed to cut bars and locks, but it couldn't make a nasty one-time use improvised we- melee weapon in a pinch. It absolutely could. Um, Same thing. You just kind of walk up, place it on someone's neck, and activate it. Ooh, I, I'd, I'd probably, I'd probably rule it. What holdout blaster damage? You think? Conceivably, for like one hit at, at engage range, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I could totally do that. Um, obviously, your difficulty is going to be improvised weapon difficulty, but that's still totally reasonable. I mean, if you, if you, you have a lethal tool at your disposal, even if it's just for one shot. Right. Um, also, uh, the mem stick. I mean, mem sticks are cheap, uh, but you know, and, and the mem stick that comes with it, it's loaded with maps and location info, but. You know, it's a mem stick. That means you can add things and remove things to it. It's basically a Star Wars thumb drive. It could easily be filled with contraband or smuggled secrets um, that are tucked away, undiscoverable, with plus two difficulty to notice it. 
Um, not to mention giving a PC a way to download such info in a pinch if they find themselves with terminal access, but no data pad or blank mem stick to load it onto. I think of a scenario where PCs are let into a secured area with the with the um, knowledge that all recording devices will be confiscated. Mm-hmm. And they have this in their boot and they get access to a terminal on site and they just download a bunch of files that they shouldn't have. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, the not so right tool for the job, but close enough. Uh, depending on the object and the type of repair needed, I might allow this kit to be used to make a mechanics check to fix an item. Um, obviously one attempt, but, and if you, but if you need tools to try it, perhaps with a setback die or two, hmm? Oh, 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 I see what you did there. A <laughs> 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 oh, yuck, yuck. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the equivalent of, I mean, yeah, if it's like, I have this, uh, okay, well, you don't have the right tools for the job, uh, so you're going to suffer setback die, but at least I'll attempt, I'll let you attempt the check. You know, like something like something like okay, you are you just got engaged in a firefight, and the the door with the airlock that leads to your ship, the the comm panel's been damaged. Oh, I want to fix it. What are you fixing with? You don't have your tools with you. Um, I've got this break out of jail kit. I can I use the the kit the the tools within it as like ad hoc jury rig. Uh, parts to like connect to diodes that are no longer connected so power feeds through it just enough to get the door open i'm like you know what that sounds awesome use spend that 400 you'll burn that 450 credit item and uh, make your escape dude what about the opposite you talk about repair and jury rigging what about sabotage oh absolutely i mean it's not it's not breaking out of jail but like i need to disable something or i need to i need to destroy something um, I mean, honestly, I've, I've got, if you, if you tell me it's like, where's your toolkit? I don't have it, but I happen to have a laser cutter and some files and slice wire and a knife <laughs> like yeah. in, in my boot. I'm like, yup. Okay. There you go. You got, you know, one time use, you got what you need. So yeah, every agent, you know, if, if you think about like the, the proper kit for your, your, your classic secret agent, they should have one of these kits in each shoe. Yeah. One to break out of jail and one to just... <laughs> break <laughs> I, I love it see this is an open call now for all of our d20 radio staff writers to create different versions of this kit you know one one that the, whereas this one is optimized for for captivity escape give me one that's optimized for sabotage give me one that's go. give me one that's optimized for repair give me one that's optimized uh, all these one-time uses of course give me one that's optimized for medicine show me show me one with a stim pack located inside and some basic medical tools there you go. How about that? Mm. <laughs> very good suggestion. Very good. Very good topic. Anything else on the uh, the concealed escape kit? Uh, it's neat, and I should have one. <laughs> well, that I I will I will completely agree with. Um, and if you guys have suggestions that you'd like us to cover in Wattos, send us an email, uh, which we'll talk about how you can do that in a little bit, um, or head to the forums uh, for the podcast where we actually um, have a dedicated uh, board message thread specifically for Wattos. Um, you can also, of course, uh, message us through social media, which we are very happy to get. But now it is time to come to the end of this particular show. Tis. Tis. Guys, we want you to become a member of the Gamer Nation. Um, head to the Order 66 Podcast Facebook page. Throw us a like. 
and, and post up any questions or, or, or show topics that you'd like discussed on the show. Um, you can also join the D20 Radio Facebook group, which is a, a vibrant and active community of listeners ready to share your geeky loves, passions, memes, and also engage in robust gaming discussion and questions. Visit us at www.d20radio.com. Um, there you'll find a link to the show, of course, but also to our forum community if you want to go old school, register and post your mind. Uh, you can also email your questions and topic requests to us at GM Chris, GM Phil, or GM Dave at d20radio.com. Or if you're brave enough, leave us a question via the voicemail on the D20 Radio hotline at 262-D20-RADIO. That's 262-320-7234, 262-320-7234. Or if you don't want to leave a question, leave us a liner. We haven't got one in a while. Tell mm. us who you are and why you never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Oh, so are we going to have another show before the end of the year? Maybe. I have no idea what your December looks like. Um, next uh, next Sunday, well, we wouldn't be doing this next Sunday anyway, but um, I I might have the time. I, I, I'll, I'll be around. Okay. I'm not going anywhere. Maybe the weekend after Christmas? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, that could, oh, mm, no. No, I'm not available that night. Okay. Pick someone up from the airport. Okay. Well. But we can find, we'll find time. We will, we will find we will time. Fi- we'll find time to get another show in before the end of the year, Gamer Nation. Um, thank you all for your patience with us, and I hope our return to uh, the airwaves has met you with jollies, satisfaction, and no small amount of happiness. Mm-hmm. And with that, this is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And this is GM Phil. May the dice be with you, and happy holidays. You've been listening to the Order 66 podcast brought to you by Ethan Kinsey, GM Scott, Jeremy Bensley, Bert Ingley, Joshua Taylor, and William Fyle. This podcast and related websites are not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games, 20th Century Fox, Walt Disney Corporation, or Lucasfilm Limited, and its content is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. All original content is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast and Gamer Nation LLC. I think it's fitting as we return to the airwaves we, we do something we haven't done in a while maybe a post show huh 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 yeah, let's do it well we got a lot of co- cool stuff to talk about this completely unrelated to anything else we've talked about absolutely um dude i'm like the timing the time do okay okay do you know when avengers 4 is gonna drop because it was made but now they said april do we know when in april have they said I think they may have just if if they moved it up, they probably only moved it up like a week. Probably, probably because they almost all for like the last okay since Iron Man, they have had a movie out on the first weekend in May. 
I know, but the trailer they just dropped said April at the end. Then I don't know. I don't know. The, ti- the timing would be amazing. In my fevered dreams, it would be the second weekend of April, and, and we could organize a... a we, we could, like, I don't know, we could rent out a theater for Gamer Nation. Oh, sweet gods, yes. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be... That would be that'd be outrageous. That'd be so cool. <laughs> so, okay. Just buy a theater. So, okay. Two two big trailers dropped recently. The the first was the the non-teaser trailer, the actual full-on trailer for Captain Marvel, which comes out in March, I think. Uh, yes, mid-March. Absolutely phenomenal. So, yeah, what are your thoughts, man? I mean, are you are you are you jacked for this movie? What are you what are you looking forward to? I am psyched. I am absolutely psyched. I I I can't help but laugh, giggle out of my chair. At all the at all the uh, all the uh, grognard man babies that are that are upset about like oh you know why do we need a film about just her why can't she be partnered up with other heroes what is this oh I don't like it oh she doesn't smile enough oh X Y Z die in a fire die mad yeah sorry no sympathy there no I, no sympathy. I, I am ecstatic about this movie I cannot wait they gave her the mohawk. She looks awesome. It's got Samuel L. Jackson completely breaking down, going, Oh, little kitty. Oh, you kitty. Oh, you kitty. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Fury. Yes. Dude. And if you've, if you've read any of the recent Captain Marvels, I'm hoping that's her cat, which is not actually a cat. It's like a, a flurgle, or I forget what, they, what it is. It's, it's an alien, basically. Oh, geez. They, 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 they look like cats, but they lay eggs, produce at a phenomenally unreasonable rate, and have the ability to produce extra-dimensional spaces inside of their bodies, um, which they can then open up through their mouths. Um, they're terrifying. Uh, <clears throat> uh, absolute creatures. Um, uh, I was uh, on, on Amazon Prime. Uh, if, you're, if you're an Amazon Prime guy, you can download um, uh, volume one of, of one of the volume ones of, of one of the Captain Marvel trades. Um, and, and they, uh, it's a really cool storyline too. And, and I, I read through it and they, um, they, they bring up the cat and like, she encounters the guardians of the galaxy and rockets like, that's a freaking flurgle. And he like tries to kill it and shoots up her ship and stuff. (laughs) He's like, do you know what that is? So, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, dude, I don't know. It, It looks, it looks righteous. And also, I, now IMDb and Funko Pop have spoiled Jude Law's character. I haven't seen it. Do, are you? Do you wish to know, or do you wish to be surprised? Um, I'll I'll kind of be surprised. I, I wouldn't mind. Okay, uh, I won't. I won't. I won't say anything yet. Um, but he. I mean, I'm sure it'll get ruined between now and then. So actually, you know. But you know, for the benefit of anyone who's who, who's listening who might not know, let's we'll we'll hold off. Okay. Um. Okay, then, then I, I, I won't I won't say anything. But yeah, we know who he is now. Um, okay, and uh, which is great. I cannot wait to see how that plays out. Uh, and well, well, okay. So let's go with my theory. Is he Marvel? Yes, he is Marvel. Nice, nice. So <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting, uh, dude. Annette Benning. What is it? Glenn Close and Guardians. Annette Benning in this. <laughs> Uh, What's with these storied actresses? <laughs> why not? Why not? I, I I freaking absolutely love it. Um, 
the you know but the 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 90s vibe is awesome the uh the teaser which is obviously came out a couple months ago uh where she she craters into the blockbuster oh it took me back i used to be an assistant manager at blockbuster oh i had no idea of that okay wow yeah i'm like oh my god it's like that it was that (laughs) it could have been my store oh man so yeah I'm, i'm absolutely thrilled um and and I, I, I just I, I can't I cannot wait. Um, and I, I showed the trailer to my kid. And what's interesting is and this kind of hurts my heart. Like she's seen a couple of the Marvel movies and she's kind of like, OK, I mean, she's not she's not into it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I showed her Captain Marvel, the, the, tra- the trailer and the teaser and the trailer. And she was like, oh, yeah, let's go see that, dad. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, all right. Yes, yes, yes. But okay, especially for that scene where she's like flying near orbit, just lighting up ships as she goes by. It's so cool. Oh, just give me that big CGI fight. <laughs> yep. Just, just give it. Just give me. Just give me that CGI fight. Um, oh, the CGI looks horrible. No, it doesn't. You look like an ass. The CGI is awesome. I want to see it. CGI looks great. And dude, I mean, I'm sorry. Nick Fury is entirely CGI'd. Yes. Okay. <laughs> He looks great. And he looks fantastic. I cannot tell. It looks like a young Samuel L. Jackson. I, I oh my god. I um, mean, when when they first did that kind of thing in, uh, was it Ant Man before Volume Two? Yeah, Ant Man came out before Volume Two. Guardians, right? Uh yes, it was Ant Man. Uh, then because yeah, Gu- Ant Man just had that whole retrograde look first. Yes, and that was only for like that brief moment, and then. Um, there was another brief moment of that in uh, in Volume Two of Guardians. This is like the first time we've seen it like film long. Yeah, and I'm I, the technology is incredible. So yeah. whatever, whatever, whatever Disney is doing, uh, geez, Louise, um, keep doing it. Keep doing it. And then, of course, the teaser for Avengers Four dropped. What Wednesday? I think this week. Friday. Was it Friday? Really? Friday. Okay, yeah, it was Friday. Got delayed Friday. Wednesday, and That's it finally right. came out Friday morning. That's right, it did come out Friday morning. So, okay, man, thoughts? Damn. Yeah, that that look on 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 Clint's face, who is now Ronan. Oh, his family got dusted. Oh yeah, his family totally got dusted. His whole family got dusted. You know it. Yeah, you absolutely know it. At least his kids. But his whole family got dusted. Uh, so, okay, I got everything I wanted out of that teaser. They don't show you a whole lot, which I like. No. no. But what they chose to show you was the mindset and emotional tone and emotional state of those characters following the events of Infinity War. Yes. That's what they chose to show you. That's what they need to show you. Yes. Just uh, the devastation. The absolute devastation. Um, in, in, and it's not global devastation. It's, it's the emotional devastation that yeah. they're all feeling. People just disappeared. Yeah. They're gone. Um, so do you want to jaw about some theories from this? <laughs> sure, why not? Because I'm interested to get your, your thoughts. So, uh, okay, the first one. Um, I love that they started with Tony and... Robert Downey Jr. is an amazing actor, and that performance of a man who has resigned himself to death uh, was uh, brought a little bit of a tear to my eye, actually. 
where's Nebula? Because you see her later in the trailer. Do you think she's on that ship with him? Or did she ditch him? Or what? Hard to say. Um, I have to assume that they agreed to at least work together to get off. Otherwise, how the hell, how, how the hell else did she leave? Yeah. And it, it, it's it's the Milargo, so obviously she'd be somewhere else. You know, who knows? Okay, so interesting piece of fan trivia. It's not the Milano. Um, oh. uh, if it, they, they've confirmed this as as well, the uh, the ship that you see in Infinity War is is not the Milano. It's because the basically the Milano, the Milano got scrapped in uh, Guardians Two. Um, oh right. And when and Rocket was trying to repair it, apparently, and I love this, the new ship that they fly, which is obviously the same make and model, I think it may be the Milano rebuilt, but they rechristened it. It's and and this is the ship they're flying in Avengers Infinity War. It's the Benatar. Oh God! <laughs> so that's the actual name of the ship, um, and I think that's what Tony's on because that's what the only that would be the only ship on the planet would be the Benatar. So oh God. Tony Stark riding Pat Benatar. Exactly. Um, so there is a theory about time travel. Yeah, because there have been leaked footage of Ant-Man appearing in the uh, Battle of New York. So looking back into my lore, if you rewatch the end credits of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Yes. The the end credit scene where where he gets stuck in the quantum realm and everybody gets dusted. Yep. Before everybody gets dusted and before he goes in the quantum realm, uh Janet uh Michelle Pfeiffer, she she gives him a smile and a throwaway line where she tells him as he's going into the quantum realm, she says, um, you know, watch out for time vortexes. If you get stuck in one, we have no way to rescue you. Huh. Rewatch it. My my current theory on this is that obviously Scott found his I, I think Scott found his way out in a time vortex. Maybe went back to the Battle of New York, okay? And maybe even waited it out or or found his way back to the current present time. And I think I think when when he pulls up to the to Avengers HQ, he's got the van. And that van has the mini quantum realm traveling device in the back of it oh yeah oh yeah so i i think he i think the solution is time travel and he's like hey i have a way to send us all back in time and i i think i think the scene where cap and black widow are in some kind of a ship which you assume was a quinjet uh saying you know you know th- this is gonna work and he's like it has to because otherwise i don't know what i'm gonna do i think that ship is about to go through a time vortex in the quantum realm you think that ship could be the Benatar? Could be. But the other thing, everyone's like, well, how did, how, how's Tony going to get rescued? How's Tony going to get rescued? And no one is saying the obvious. Captain Marvel's Marvel. going to find him. Yeah. Of course. Finds him. Of course. Captain Marvel's going to find him. That's, that's, that's what, that's what will happen. Um, so I, I don't know because, and Cap looks meaningfully at that picture of Peggy Carter too, as he says that. So I think he's going back to a time where she's still alive. And he knows he's going to get a chance to see her again as well. So, I don't know. We only have five months to wait. Also, um, 
Chris. Oh God, I forget the uh, God. I get all the Chris's confused. Captain America. Uh, Evans. Chris Evans made a tweet a couple months ago when they finished shooting. Yeah. And the tweet was basically like, "Well, we've wrapped. It has been such an honor to be on this journey with these fine actors over these years." Yep. Like that whole thing, and I was like, yeah. and I was like, "Oh God, they're gonna kill Cap." This is potentially. This, this is Evans' last film. Like it is because his contract's up. I mean, well, yeah, but his contract's been up before, and he renewed it. Um, sure. uh, he and he there was worry that he wasn't going to because he hated the um, the physical regimen they had to put him on to make him look like that. Yeah, <laughs> but apparently enough zeros on a paycheck can overcome that discom- the discomfort. <laughs> um, uh, yes, yes, indeed. Uh, but uh, who do you who do you think is gonna sur- who do you, who do you think is gonna kick the bucket in this film? I don't think Robert Downey Jr. is. I don't think Tony's dying. Really? I think Tony, I think my, my call is that is that Tony's done. Tony gets back to Earth, realizes what's important, finally says, finally does what he looks like he almost did at the end of uh at the end of, of Iron Man 3 as like, nope, someone else is Iron Man now, not me. I'm done. And he becomes this kind of mentor figure, and who knows? Maybe he like comes out of retirement every you know once in a blue moon or something. Uh, but someone else becomes, um, you know, if there is an Iron Man, someone else becomes Iron Man. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think it's been brought up before in Infinity War that Pepper was tr- they were having that conversation about having kids. I think, yep. and if it was saying Pepper's pregnant, right? Yeah, um, you know, they're they're planning their wedding, and and honestly, if if Tony became a dad, that would probably be the impetus for him to. I will not be my father. Yeah, precisely. There is, there is, there is, I I don't know. I'm sorry, it would be the perfect, it would be the perfect end to his character arc too. The entire journey from Selfish Tony that we saw from Iron Man 1 on. Okay. So, God, I'm just so excited. Yeah, same. I'm I'm so excited. I cannot wait. Okay, are you up and up on Arrowverse this season? I'm not. I'm not. I, I unfortunately have not been. I haven't had the time, man. I just haven't. So, Which sucks because they're just doing Elseworlds, and I'm I am a diehard fan for Elseworld stories. I know it's uh, it's it's love Elseworld stories. It, it's just starting to, and it, it it I don't know. It's it's it looks pretty exciting. Um, it's interesting though. It's only going to be a three show crossover. They're not bringing the legends into it. Um, Which is a shame because I really need to watch Legends because I was I was a huge fan of the Constantine TV series that was out briefly. Yeah. I love his interpretation of the character. See, my thing is I'm a full season behind on Legends. I didn't watch. I haven't watched last season of Legends yet. It was all. It was always. Uh, I mean, I mean, there are people that will probably stone me for this. I always felt it was the weakest of the four shows. Yeah. Um, but um, I haven't watched any of Arrow this season. I just haven't had the time. Yeah. Um, but I am I am forcing myself to be fully caught up on Flash, which is my favorite of the four. Um, oh, Grant Gustin is perfect. That's the Flash. He's I love him. Amazing. Um, and Supergirl. And the big thing for Supergirl is I don't know if you know I don't know if you probably do know this, but Sam Witwer is a season yeah. is a season regular. Um, yes. And he plays Agent Liberty. And uh, it just choose the scenery, man. It's it's absolutely fantastic. And they. 
they've had some very interesting swipes at society and politics in prior seasons, and some of them have been really clever and interesting. Some of them have been ham-fisted. Um, sure. This isn't like an episode. This is the entire crux of the season so far, and it's really focusing on topics that are, again, through the way that comics can, uh, you, you put it, putting a prism up to our world in, in, in a different way. And the Supergirl focus is, you know, it's obviously, when they talk about aliens, they're talking about actual aliens. But it, it's about it's about intolerance, immigration, um, all, all this stuff. And yeah. what I have appreciated most is they don't paint Agent Liberty and his character in a positive light. He's a maniac. He's a murderer. Okay. And they're very clear about that fact. But they spent an entire episode of doing nothing but his backstory. And from going from a very reasonable guy who's like a history professor at a college to being this guy that he is now. And they take great care to show both sides of this story and, and the path that leads him there. And they deal with subjects like, you know, you know, jobs being lost and changing society and all kinds of stuff. It's been very intriguing to watch. Huh. Um, very, very intriguing to watch. Um, so that's been kind of interesting. And uh, the Flash this season, they, I, I don't know, are, are you caught up on last season of Flash? I, 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 I watched up until uh, Crisis on Earth X and I just didn't watch anything else the rest of the year. So I have, I have no idea how the whole thing with the, uh, the, uh, the Tinkerer? Uh, no, the Thinker. Thinker, thank you. I have no idea how that ended. Okay, well, that, that got wicked crazy. Um, and they introduced... I don't know if by the time you got to Crisis on Earth-X, um, had they introduced Elongated Man yet? Yes. Okay, so he's a series regular now. Nice. Okay, and is is fantastic. And the I act, love Ralph. The, dude, the, the actor who's playing him too, he he gets the character of Ralph Dibney, and and he's playing it appropriately. It's just... It's wonderful. Yeah. Um... But he he's a, he's a season regular. But but the big thing is, if you okay, so you've seen Crisis on Earth X. Uh, there were they started peppering this this girl in who kept showing up at different points, and she was like a an usher at their wedding. Yeah, and um, at the at the end of the season, she shows up and they and reveals she's like, "Hi, my my name is uh, Nora Allen West. I'm I'm your daughter." from the future and I, something's gone terribly wrong. Oh, geez. Yes. <laughs> and she's the DC character of, of XS. Um, yes. XS. Yeah. And, uh, that's her. And, and oh, she's, cool. she's Barry and Iris kid. And, and that she's, she's, she's been the primary focal point of season four. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been, it's been a riot. So yeah, dude, you need to, you need to catch up. Right on. I, I, will, I will have to try to do put that post-haste. Do you have Netflix? Technically, yes. Okay, good. Okay, you have a way to act. Yeah, seriously. Because last season's on Netflix, so I mean, just ca- catch up, man, and then, oh, dude, it's just, yeah. You need to. Cool. You, 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 you need to. You need to. Will do. Will do. <sighs> Any other pieces of geekery to jaw about? I've been so excited to talk to somebody, anybody about this stuff, so. <laughs> <laughs> By proxy, um, all of the listeners of Order 66, and personally you. 
Um, I'm for some dumb reason uh, am on a like hardcore weird war binge. I've like found all these old dust tactics minis that are on stupid stupid discount because they're like you know they're really old like World War II fantastic weird war stuff like old Tannhauser game I found and I don't know why I'm just like all wrapped up in 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 this kind of like you know weird war fantasy setting type stuff and I'm like you know I'm 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 eager to you know not not in the hopes of like you know you know if they do if and when they do a Tannhauser book that I might get a chance to write it but I don't know why I'm just like all jazzed up for it and just for some reason just wicked into it right now. Well, dude, I know um, there was a game. Uh, somebody ran a Weird War game in Genesis last Gamer Nation Con. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I did not see it. I missed out on it. But, you know, maybe there'll be another. Uh, maybe there'll be another. Oh, oh, no, no. That's right. Um, my buddy Alex is possibly looking at doing a kind of a Weird War Genesis where you're basically playing characters from the JSA. Really? Yup. Not like it is Alan Scott and and um you know all, all the all the specific characters, just kind of like shades and homages to them type things. But basically, yeah, you're playing like Sandman and Our Man and uh, Green Lantern or you know whatever a Hawkman, you know whatever characters he ends up choosing. Dude, I love it. Um... Yeah. Uh, that, no. that, Alex is a huge World War II buff and and diehard JSA fanatic. Dude, that that's God. To to see, I, I would love to see that run at Gamer Nation Con. It would be so fitting to have to have to have a. I mean, in, in essence, what you're talking about is a a Silver Age Supers theme or Golden Golden. Yeah, Golden Age Golden Super, Age gold, Golden Age Supers theme. You know, with with Weird War elements. I think it's freaking brilliant. Um, he saw your. Aegis rules, and he's like, "That's it. I know how I'm doing these characters." Well, cool. Um, so, he, uh, he he was one of the folks who, when we went down, um, actually, to be to be fair, everyone I came down, everyone I drove down with had had varying degrees and moments of, um, I, I maybe call it imposter syndrome, but you know, just sort of like, "Oh my god, am I actually, am I actually good enough to do this?" And I'm like, guys you're fine. Come on down. Just run a game. And you know what? It, 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 to be unfair, you're just running a game. That's all you're doing. You know, it, it's, it's, you're just running a game. You're there to have fun. As long as your players have a good time, you did your job. You're not expected to be experts with the rules. You're expected to be familiar enough with them to run a game for folks who are at this convention. Yeah. And... You know, I, you know, in addition to that moment of me looking around the con and seeing like, oh my god, my games, something I wrote is being run at multiple tables. I also had this moment where I was just looking around at all, every table where you know one of my buddies was at, folks that I've been gaming with since college, and they were sitting there, they were having a groove, they were doing their thing, they were being animated GMs, and every one of their players had a big ass smile on their face, and they were loving every second of it. And I'm like, that's my boys. And those are the moments where you're like, "This is why I hobby. This is this is why I love the hobby." Exactly. This is this is and why you do it. Alex is a great fiction writer. He comes up with some awesome ideas, and he's run a couple games that I've been in, and I just absolutely love the concept of, and had a great time doing. And if he's going to write like a one shot four hour con mod to be run once or twice down at Gamer Nation Con, which focuses on the JSA 
basically. Yeah, that's that's going to be fun. That's going to be real fun. And if he puts it up, whoever signs up for it is going to be a lucky player. Dude, dude, we're going to have so much fun. Uh, so, I mean, I've obviously got my Aegis setting. Um, you know, you have what you described. We got. It sounds like it sounds like that may be a possibility. So, mm-hmm. the other two uh, big podcasters on the network that we know are coming in some form or fashion. Um, the first is obviously um, uh, Huli's in chat right now, uh, watching us yes. live. Uh, so obviously, uh, Huli uh, has a strong possibility of coming. Um, but at the very least, and and also Huz and Flano have said they are, but I know that's kind of up in the air. But uh, GM Caitlin is stateside and uh, will definitely be there. Um, uh, running games, and I know that Huli has been working on a. Uh... Well, said they are, but I know that. Well, what's that? Did we bring somebody on? No, that's me trying to respond to something in chat, and it like pops it out, and it started playing the feed. Oh, weird. So I was actually trying to like type a reply to someone in chat, but it it. Ugh. Ah, it's okay. Um, but apologies. Uh, I know that um, I know that uh, Huli has uh, been working on an Avengers setting, an Avengers theme, um, nice. and what I what I love most about it is you know as as you dig into these rules for for replicating superpowers by using the magic rule set, which is kind of what I did with Aegis. Sure. Um, you know I, I kept it simple. I narrowed it down. When when I think about Green Lantern style powers, I narrowed it down to three core skills. Uh, you know, attack or attacking, which is strike. Uh, protect um, and transit. Okay, you know, literally hurting something, protecting something, and moving something. Okay, Th- that's it. And the various powers that you can manifest that are out there are covered are are covered in one form or fashion under those skills. Okay, um, you know, and some of them can be used for you, some powers. You can use all three skills for you know, but then different effects appropriately. When Huli was first attacking this, and I don't know if he's still doing this, but I, I I'd love to hear more. Um, is he his idea was six powers skills uh that can be used you know like magic skills can to accomplish varied powered effects but his skills were power space time mind soul reality <laughs> right which makes so much sense right it does um and so i'm i'm very eager to see if he's if he's got that done in some form or fashion by gamer nation con and if it's going to be if it's going to be run uh i think that would be absolutely epic um the other thing that uh we have we have another big podcast presence coming is obviously the the fellows from geek pantheon um yes. so so geek pantheon um uh they have they have three shows my, my my i listen to eberron renewed that's like my crack but that's because like eberron is my second favorite setting of all time sure. um and which is a great actual play uh, a podcast, but um, Eric uh, DM Eric Eric Shrimple is going to be on site, and he's going to be running a special game set in Eberron, but it's X Men, dude. It's it's X Men in Eberron. I don't know if you know anything about that about that setting, Phil. I don't know if you ever played in it. Oh God, I was all over Eberron. Okay, so you okay? So you you recall the aberrant marks? Oh yeah. Yeah, so that's the thing. It's X-Men and House Tarkanon with aberrant marks. That's the thing. They're... Oh, that's awesome. Isn't that wicked? And oh, I'm, that's fun. I'm just like, oh, that sounds amazing. So yeah, he's doing an X-Men and Eberron game, uh, which is going to be beyond epic. Um, and yeah, man, it's going to be... 
It's going to be so great. Um, JT's in chat. He says, um, since we're talking Gamer Nation Con, considering the success of the latest Kickstarter, are we considering moving to a larger venue for Gamer Nation Con 7? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I will respond with two pieces of information uh, after telling you that I don't know. Um, the first is the cost to move to a larger venue is I'm not exaggerating when I tell you exponentially higher than what we pay now. Yeah. And when you factor in that a huge per- part of the reason that we do the con at that location is because of the game library that's there existing. Yep. We would have to pay to have that moved. I don't even think they do that anymore, or we'd have to find a way to get one there really to have the same bang for our buck. I don't know. Additionally, um, that's the first piece of information. The second piece of information is my my fine friend, good man, experienced gamer, who also has several years, many years of running conventions under his belt, the man and the legend known as Sterling Hershey, gave us a very important piece of advice a few years back. He said, when you reach the point that you are selling out months before the convention do that a couple years in a row then you consider moving venues because at that point when people want to get in and can't is when the buzz is going to start really generating and you're going to be able to start affording a much larger place plus if we move to a larger venue it's just going to make it a more expensive con man i mean right now we offer four day badges for 65 bucks that's a freaking bargain I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we don't have a, we, we, it's just, it's just not an expensive con. We don't make you pay for events. We, we have a hotel where the room block is what? $85 a night, I think. Um, and it's not a bad hotel. No, it's not. It's a solid hotel. It's a solid hotel. So I, I mean, yeah, it does. You know, it does make me wonder, though, if like what the possibility is of like. Unfortunately, that uh, that hotel doesn't have like you know as much as far as like, uh, like the 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 what's the word I'm looking for the the meeting facilities and the convention facilities. There, yeah, there's a room with a couple tables in there, and we've taken it over a couple nights. But sure, you know, it's it's if only that hotel had like dedicated ballrooms. If it had a ballroom, we could rent. The only time also I think I would consider going to a larger venue and it would be a substantial cost increase at that point we would be moving into a very different kind of convention um, yeah. is 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 having a proper con where it's at, where the the con is at the hotel where we have the room blocks. Nobody needs to drive. People can stagger from their room to the game, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where where it's a large enough venue with multiple ballrooms and locations where we can have everything set up. That would be what I consider to be the next step. But I don't know, Phil, man. We got we got differing opinions. You know, I talk to people local that are like, yeah, you got to get a bigger venue so we can have more people come. You know, I'm like, okay, well, we're not, you know, we're... Last year, we sold out at the door. Okay, but that was, yeah. that was at the door. So we're not, we're not close to denying people that really want to come yet. Not really, okay? And then yeah. on, the, on the other side, we have people, especially a lot of our international travelers, that have told me to my face, point blank, I don't want this con to get bigger than it is. Like, like it would, yeah, and, and, it would, and I, I can see that too. There is, there is something very appealing about the size of the convention it is. 
you know, it, the it, fact that it is the best four days of gaming with your closest 150 friends. Pretty much. And, and that's, uh, there are probably things that would change if you doubled or tripled the amount of attendees. Yeah. I mean, it, it might not feel like it has, it would lose, it would lose a lot of its intimacy and some of its charm. I mean, I'm sure it's still be a kick-ass con, but you know, it, it, the more people you get, the, the more likelihood of someone getting, you know, kind of lost in the, lost in the crowd. Yeah. It's, 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 it's there. But this, this family feel we have right now, I mean, we have, and I, I hear this every year. We have people that come for the very first time. They take the plunge. They don't come with anyone else. They're just there by themselves. And yeah. they're, they're at the con 20 minutes. And a complete stranger will be like, hey, we're playing this. Do you want to join us? And, you know, that's what the con is. That's what it's about. If, you, if I had to sum up the entire feeling of the con in one example, that's it. Yep. So, so I mean... Do we lose? I don't know. I don't know. These are philosophical quandaries, JT. Once again, obviously, the discussion came up in the car ride home from uh, from PAX Unplugged. Like, you know, the possibilities of Gamer Nation Con East and Gamer Nation Con Northeast and how it could be done, how we could do it locally up here and as, as a similar thing. The big problem, and you mentioned it just a few moments ago, is the venue. Yeah. It's all about the venue. Dallas Games Marathons is an awesome place to do it because it's got the space, it's got the tables, and it's got the game wall. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's why. I mean, but but well, that but that venue, I mean, we we've put a hard cap on attendee tickets at 150 attendees. That's it, because yep. because fire code on the place is 180. Okay, and that's that's people jam packed to the gills, and that's fire code. We can't go beyond that. And you set aside, so so we pretty we pretty much we're limiting it to 170. We have 20 badges set aside for staff and guests. Okay. Yep. And that's that's it. Um, it's all the rope. So that's that's that that's what it is. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a teeny tiny little little wonderful little place with a board game library of 1,400 titles. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, we're making some changes this year though to give us a little bit more space, which will be nice. Um, oh. we, we are going to have a a dedicated little room. Uh, we we used to put Artemis in it previously. Um, yeah, uh, we're gonna have we're gonna have that little Artemis room dedicated for MVG play. Mm, nice, nice. So, so that'll that'll give us a, a nice little extra table. Um, yeah, so that'll be good for the MVGs. It'll be very good for the MVGs. And of course, when there's not MVG play going on, we'll have other events scheduled there. So Cool. Yes, sir, Bob. I just can't wait. Ah. He's beautiful. So excited. All right. I think we need to call it, man. Yeah, it's about that time. It's about that time. Ah, oh, good episode. Good discussion. Good to be back. I know. I know. Good to be back. I didn't realize how much I missed this until I realized that I missed it. <laughs> so it's always the way, man. It's always the way. It's how it is. It's how it is. Just means that we'll have to. We'll, we'll definitely have to do one. Uh, do one soon. Uh, but one more before the end of the year, absolutely. Yes, indeed. All right, Gamer Nation. Good night. <laughs> good night. And good luck. <laughs>